Welcome to Analog Modern Radio. My name is Nathan Queso. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting with Richard Tui. Richard and his partner Dana run NanoLab, which is the only lab in Australia that processes Super 8 motion picture film. Richard, welcome to the podcast. You want me? You got me. Talk to me. It's your 10 cents. I'm pretty keen to um, just know a little bit about your background. I think it's a pretty interesting thing that you do, um, you know, running a lab that services Super 8 film. Um, and I'd just love to know a bit about how you've kind of ended up in this position. Ah, just randomly. The, on the other hand, um, I, I had always had an abiding interest in um, Super 8. Uh, since the 80s, I'd been involved in the Melbourne Super 8 scene. I mean, back then, I was involved in the Melbourne Super 8 scene. That stayed with me. I had a reasonable hiatus from working with film during the 90s, but then came back to it about 2000. Not long after that, Kodachrome was discontinued. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. You, you familiar with Kodachrome? Yeah, yeah. I never shot it myself, which um, I have mixed feelings about because I love it so much. Um, and I actually spent probably six weeks of the lockdown last year, the big Melbourne lockdown, um, scanning my sure. my grandmother's old Kodachrome slides from the 60s and 70s. Oh, yes which were just amazing to and see. And that gave you a love-hate relationship with Kodachrome? Well, no, it's more just I'm glad I never shot it because I think if I had it taken away from me, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you'd sort of come back from that. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, that's it's, a good call. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. And, and she also had a few of the Ektachrome slides from the original Ektachrome, which were really nice, but oh, yeah. I don't think kind of had that same... I don't know, there was just something about Kodachrome. Well, sure. Um, I mean, look, one of the things that was most about Kodachrome was, was its longevity. It was virtually indestructible. Yeah. I, I personally think that the new ectochrome is more beautiful, but you know, just going by decades of us having ectochromes in comparison to Kodachrome, Kodachrome lasted forever, whereas ectochrome is a less a less concrete technology, let's just put it that way. Yeah, but okay. I didn't finish my story. No, continue, please. Yeah. Kodachrome finished and Kodak at the same time launched the new Ectochrome 64T. And we couldn't find anyone in Australia who wanted to develop it. Sadly, Film Plus, which had been processing for years, had only oh, maybe 18 months prior to the release of 64T trashed their um, ectochrome processing machine. So they couldn't do it and uh, no one else could do it. So we started doing it and just like overnight, we were inundated with people wanting us to do it. So that's how NanoLab started. Right. And that's with the E2N process? Is that for... You're um... so close, but completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It's the E6 process. You're thinking of the ECN2 process. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's and that's color uh, neg. Yeah, for the vision. That's right. Motion picture color neg. That's right. E, that's so ECN2. Yeah. So the ectochrome just goes through the same E6, just like it does for the still image version. It's the same. Yes, um, that's right. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so we started off processing in Lomo tanks, which are these wonderful Russian-made spiral tanks that can take 50 foot two two stacks actually of 50 foot film, uh, Super 8 film. Uh, or 16, actually. So, yeah, when we started NanoLab, that's what we were doing. We were just processing in LOMOs using the three-bar Tetanol E6 chemistry. And E6 ectochrome was the thing we did. Yeah. We dabbled in black and white, but Film Plus was still doing black and white, so we did ectochrome. Nowadays, of course, we use machines, and we don't use the three-bath process. Um, we use the six-bath process with E6. But the three-bath ectochrome E6 process is just a delight. Yeah. It's just a shame that it's quite expensive. So you were just doing all that by hand. And was there any other um, film stock for Super 8 at that time? When we started, uh, there were there was color negative, a Vision 2 color negative stuff in Super 8 already. It had just been released, actually. We weren't doing it because of the problem of Remjet, the black backing on um, color negative film. We stuck with E6. Now, at that time, there were other E6 stocks available. In fact... You know, during the early years of NanoLab, there were a bunch of different E6 stocks, color, color reversal stocks that you could get. There was some people repackaging Fuji Velvia, oh, yeah. which was a 50D stock, which was amazing. And I mean, it was much better than the 64T. The 64T was an unusual stock. Everybody suspects that um, it was chosen because Kodak had a stockpile of it. Yeah. Okay. Because in still film, they'd stopped selling it. And uh, but they were still they were still selling at the time a number of different 100 daylight ectochrome stocks in 35 mil. But in Super 8, they made this old tungsten stock available. And it was it was look, it was 
a very interesting stock. The colors were amazing. It was just grainier than we were used to. Yeah. But if you could have it now as well as the 100D, it would be great. It's a nice, nice choice. But yeah. anyway, look, I wanted to say something about Kodachrome, the demise of Kodachrome, mm-hmm. just before we leave that topic. Yeah. While it was a beautiful thing, it did require an extremely complex process, which is a fascinating process, the way it was developed, like the, the development process for Kodachrome, an extremely complex process that really only Kodak and one other lab in the world ever did. The thing is that with regards Super 8, the cameras were getting older all the time. Now, color negative film can tolerate exposure meters that are off or even not working, like off as in, you know, inaccurate. Yeah, it's got quite a lot of latitude. A huge amount of latitude. Kodachrome and even ectochrome, but Kodachrome in particular had none, yeah. zero. So to a certain extent, there's better images able to be captured now in these old cameras that are either partially broken or, you know, just off than there would be if we still had Kodachrome. So it's time had come, unless there was a new camera to come out, you know, Kodachrome would be disappointing a lot of people now, which is interesting. Yeah, particularly for Super 8. Like you said, all the, all the cameras are old. Oh, it's look, hard to it, know exactly how, how well they're metering and... Um... Oh, that's right. And there's no servicing them. I mean, you know, there was a whole industry in making those cameras and that industry is gone. So there's no spare parts and what have you. Yeah, no, I've I've learned that the hard way with a few rather expensive cameras that have stopped working quite quickly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they shouldn't be expensive. They should be cheap yeah. because they're very old, but, um, but they've become expensive again. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, certainly I think code, we're, we're really better off with the Cullen Egg and the scanning possibilities of Cullen Egg are so much better than what you could get out of Kodachrome. Yeah, for sure. So, and you know, I, I think the same thing with still image. I, I scan all my own um, stills with 35mm and, and medium format and I, you know, I don't shoot slide i don't shoot you know transparency film i just shoot color neg because there's just mm. so much you can pull out of it it's ridiculous Look, it really is and from a commercial point of view like as a processing lab that's trying to service as many people as possible and obviously as a small business we're trying to do it um economically and efficiently the power of color neg is just so awesome compared to the years when we were doing color reversal primarily yeah for sure there is just something about those colors though in the in the old Kodachrome. Ectochrome colors yeah, Kodachrome, yeah, reversal colours, yeah, yeah, there, there is. I think it's a bit, just being a bit nostalgic too with the past and just the way that that period of time is, is rendered. We always see it in those colours, so it just, I don't know. There's some... Well, yeah, look, a thing I ask people who are older than me is, was the world actually that colour? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I often say to my mother when we, if I'm watching a 1950s film with her, I say, look, was the world like that? <laughs> because those colours are beautiful. I don't see them around me now. And, and she thinks uh, that, yeah, to an extent, the colour is a product of the film stock, but also it's a product of the dyes that were available in the world in those days. Yeah, yeah. What what was in fashion, what colours were in fashion? with, Or not just fashion, but technically possible. Yeah, no, that's true. Mm. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. I'm curious to know a little bit about, a bit about this um this Super 8 scene that you mentioned in Melbourne in the 80s and what that oh, was about. Like, I know right. I've read a little bit on your side that you do a lot of um, sort of experimental film work. That, that sounds quite intriguing. Yeah, well, okay. In about, oh, I think maybe 84... Um, a thing in Melbourne started called the Melbourne Super 8 Film Group. Mm-hmm. Now, it started pretty much about the same time as the Melbourne Film Co-op disbanded. I didn't really ever know the Film Co-op, but the Super 8 Group, it didn't emerge from its ashes, but it emerged at the same time as that other thing collapsed. Now, the Super 8 Group used to meet once a month and have these things called open screenings, which were extraordinarily successful events, like try and replicate the kind of community support and interest in those open screenings now, and it's really hard. A lot of people came. It was a very interesting scene. The, the Cantrells actually once described it. I don't know if you know the Cantrells, but they were icons of the um, experimental film scene in Australia. I'm sure mm-hmm. people in the listening will, will know, some people will know the Cantrells. Anyway, they described the, um, the Super 8 group as probably one of the most vibrant art scenes in the country at the time. Wow. And what was going on there 
was really quite special. There were other groups that focused on home movies and all of that sort of stuff, like that had been in business forever. But that's not what super. That's not what the Melbourne Super Eight group was about. It was a. It was about people exploring the medium from an artistic point of view. There was a spectrum of people. Some people, as like me at the time. We're focusing on narrative cinema, but we was always coming to it from a cineast point of view, you know, like people who were watching the stuff at the Cinematheque, and yeah. that sort of thing. And then there was a, a really strong experimental film thing happening in the Super 8 group. Now, we used to have uh, a monthly newsletter and we used to have an annual festival and these really great open screenings uh, where you could just bring a film. Often enough, people would bring, six, say, six films a year, like themselves. So uh, it was really productive. I mean, one of the things that I learned from that is that the context can really generate work. You know, like if you set up something, like say we've got a, an organization or a, you know, a meeting thing happening, people will turn up and say, well, this is this is happening, so I'm going to make something for it, for that context. Yeah. So we were just lucky to have this thing. It was a curious thing in hindsight because back in those days, there wasn't the internet, of course. And so we were, we were completely isolated. We, there was not this you know, cheap, cheap air flight, you know, travel and stuff either in those days. And so we just looked at ourselves and watched our own films and, and didn't worry about the canons of you know, other people's expectations of cinema and all of that stuff. We just, we just looked at our own stuff. And that was really, I think, a really healthy environment and i miss it yeah well you're just kind of doing it for the joy of it really aren't you you're not sort of doing it for views and likes and the things that you know we we post on social media for it's really just about um, being part of something yeah that's right um and so obviously it's a smaller world but it was a delight when we had sound super 8 film in those days yeah so there was a, a mag stripe on the side of the film and that was pretty awesome because you could shoot something you'd have sound with it edit it and then there wasn't any post-production stuff you just put splices in it and then made another film. And you were just and and the, the viewings I'm guessing were all just via projector, like the oh um, exactly reversal yeah, yeah, film yeah. just straight onto 100%. the wall. Yeah, because there, there was no uh, yeah you could get things transferred at, at various places, but the transfers were crap. Yeah, they just didn't they didn't compare. Yeah, well, I suppose it would have been what to VHS or things like that. Yeah, VHS or Umatic. Yeah, but anyway, that was my background in experimental film. That was my film school really. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing that club kind of eventually kind of wrapped itself up. Did that come to a, like a natural end or what? You know, to be honest, I think digital really saw the end of it. Yeah. Because unlike analog video, digital video, the, the real revolution with digital video was the capacity to be able to edit at home. Yeah. Whereas analog video, you could never really edit at home. And so while home movies and things were shot on, you know, VHS or beta or whatever, that thing came along, high eight and all that. Um, still, if you wanted to make a film, you needed to be able to edit, and, and uh, Super 8 really offered a, a, an economical way of doing editing. Whereas when, in about 96, digital editing at, on a home PC came along, and that really changed the game. Yeah. And I think that, that took the wind out of that particular group. But yeah. these things die a natural death, and, and something else comes along. Yeah, exactly. Since then, what's come along is scanning. Yes. Scanning of film has just really transformed what you can do with Super 8. Yeah, and I imagine um, really expanded the audience for it as well. Sure it has, yeah. I mean, because a transfer in the old days of a Super 8 film was pretty ordinary. It really was nothing compared to what you could get on a projector. Whereas now, I really feel that the material properties and things that you get on a, on a, on a good scan of Super 8, I mean, just an ordinary scan these days is a good scan, really, of Cullen Egg. Yeah. Are really stunning. They really present you with something that's quite analogous to what it would have been like, what it was like projecting on film. And yet you've got so much power because you can basically film in the dark and you can you know, redeem badly exposed shots. You can bring out different colors. You know, it's, mm. There's just so much flexibility. So when you started the lab, were you having to learn all these processes, I guess, for, for developing film and, and scanning and everything? Was that like when you started to yep. really dive into that? Complete autodidact. Yeah. That's right. We taught ourselves. Oh, well, actually, I tell a slight lie. I did do an audiovisual certificate of technology at RMIT after I left high school. And that taught me a bit about photography and a bit about film projection and stuff like that. But really, yeah, all the, all the lab stuff we taught ourselves. We sort of were able to uh, ride the very last wave of the commercial film labs being open. We're able to pick people's brains. 
In an earlier time, the commercial film labs were very protective of information and equipment. Yeah. Like they would rather buy up a failing film lab and mothball its equipment or throw it in the sea than let a rival get it. Right. Whereas in the end game, when the commercial film labs were, the commercial motion picture film labs, that's what I'm talking about, were wrapping up, they lost that protective attitude and were, were more willing to give out information and, and equipment. You know, we benefited from that. Yeah. By picking people's brains. Yeah. I mean, I guess there was a lot, a lot of money to be made back in the 80s and probably even the 90s. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. No, I mean, a, a lot of money might be an exaggeration. But there were businesses that were viable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I chatted with Paul Atkins, who runs Atkins Lab in Adelaide. Who is just—it's a photographic lab. They don't do—they do, don't do motion yep. picture. But yeah, he said the '80s was kind of the boom for for photographic labs. They were just printing money right. with the, with all the film processing because mm. you know everyone had to do it. Yeah, it was the only way, and it's really hard to think back to the time. It's hard to think back to when that was the case. That if you wanted an image, it had to be on film. I find that quite interesting. Now it's a choice. But back then, it was the only way, and it's quite it's quite fascinating. Yeah, and I find it funny too now that when I talk to people about that, whether it's Super 8 or stills, and even um, professional photographers, and they can't believe that you can shoot on film, and it's like, well, up until you know, 15 years ago, every yeah. single picture was being taken on do. film. It's it's not yeah. that. It seems like a mystery now, but it's you know, it hasn't been that long since it really went away. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a quite fascinating. It's so so rapid and. Um, and so t- total in the sense that people have forgotten, or some people have forgotten, yeah. or young people have come up without ever knowing. But I will say, majority of our customers are people who, I don't know, what do they call them, digital natives? Yeah. People who come to film after digital, which is interesting, is not what I would have expected. No, it's, yeah, it's, there's definitely a, like, it's made a big comeback in the last five or more years, I guess, film in, in all aspects, uh, motion picture or, or photographic. Yeah, it just keeps creeping up. Yeah, it's, but it's definitely the young kids who are all um, doing it for the first time rather than people who are kind of coming back to it. Yeah, and that's such a relief. I feared when we started the lab that we'd be mostly servicing, uh, I don't want to seem prejudiced, but just old blokes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, and is that what it was back in 2006 when you were starting? Was it mostly sort of older guys? Who no, were just... no, it never was. No, okay. no, it was always it was always majority young people. Okay, right. I feared when we first put out our shingle that we'd be inundated with phone calls from people telling us what they used to do. Yeah. But uh, back in those days, I deliberately got a mobile phone so that people with landlines wouldn't call us. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it, it proved unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. And I'm. I'm... I'm kind of curious. I imagine you have a bit of an insight into, you know, film production and sales and assume you deal with Kodak reps. What do you think about the future of film and just in terms of production, like with what Kodak are doing and it always seems to be different yep. information yeah. about, you know, the status of that business and who owns it. And, and Sure. Well, look, I can answer the question. I can give you my understanding of the answer to the question with regards to motion picture film only. Yeah. Um, but I've been to Rochester a couple of times to the head office there. Well, now it's the office. Yeah. It used to be the head office. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, we used to make film in Melbourne, but um, no more. Now it's, ju- it's just made there. Now, with regards motion picture film, it is a profit-making enterprise. Okay. Right? And the profit margin on it is increasing, right? Um, which is optimistic. That said, we are lost without Kodak. Yeah. Obviously, they're the last player in the game. And sometimes you hear people, I think, naively say, I long for the time when Kodak is gone because then there'll be the opportunities for other players, you know, smaller companies. And I just think that's totally wrong. We're for color imagery, we're 100% dependent on Kodak. Yeah, I don't know where that, that train of thought would come from. I mean, even some of these newer small companies, uh, you know, like CineStill, who produce... Um, well, that's just motion picture film, yeah. Yeah, but they're buying all their stock from Kodak. They have a deal with Kodak, and I think they even now they are. Um, are working out of Rochester as well, out of the same space. And this is interesting too, and I think it's quite optimistic. There's also another ca- uh, group called uh, the Film Photography Project, which I know you'll know. I haven't actually um, heard of them. And they, Okay, Film Photography Project, yeah. From my personal interest, I, I don't focus on what they're doing in the still film area, so I can't answer for that. Yeah. But I do know that in motion picture, 
they're doing a lot of perforating of film into unusual formats, in particular standard eight film. Right. What's interesting about this is not that they're wanting to do that, but that Kodak is selling them unperforated film because for decades people were asking Kodak to make available unperforated film stock, either 16mm or whatever, so that it could be finished in different formats. You know, there are other formats that can be punched onto 16mm, for instance, to make Super 8 film or to make Standard 8 film or double Super 8 film. These are all formats that would need you to, first of all, have unperforated 16mm film. Now, Kodak were just adamant that they wouldn't do that. They're not interested in doing that. Well, they've changed their tune. And now they're making unperforated film stock available for the film photography project to perforate in standard eight. They're letting people buy what's called double super eight film, which is super eight film, but it's 16 millimeters wide. It's like standard eight film in that you shoot one half and then you shoot the other half. And then after developing as a 16 mil film, it's slit right down the middle. Right. Right, to make two eight millimeter strips. Yeah. yeah. Now, double super eight was a format in the 70s, and it was very common in the Soviet bloc. It was only a bit used in the West, but there were a number of cameras. The French made cameras for it, and the Japanese made some cameras, and you could have Bolexes converted to double super eight. That format died effectively when Kodak stopped supporting it. And when the, when the Soviet Union fell as well, mm -hmm. um, because they were making it. But recently, Pro 8mm in Burbank has um, managed to convince Kodak to make double Super 8 again for their purposes. Of course, from a production point of view, Kodak were always making double Super 8 because they would slit large rolls of film, like their huge a meter and a half wide master rolls. They'd slit it into 16mm and then they'd perforate it into super eight but they'd perforate both edges and then they'd slit it down the middle and then have super eight for sale so all of their super eight has always come via double super eight right which is a funny thing because they would nonetheless not sell it they wouldn't make it available but now they are and they're providing film stock for the cine still people i think this is all interesting and also very encouraging as a development from kodak that they're you know willing to support the deviant interests that are out there not just the, the kind of the traditional mainstream interest that kodak has always had yeah well i guess with their company becoming so so much smaller in size they've got to look for these different avenues i mean they're never going to be back to where they were so they've i guess to keep themselves going they've got to find new ways to sell film that's right of course that's correct what's encouraging is that they've acknowledged that yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the case is absolutely the case. true. Like, like we all know that that's what they need to do. I'm just pleased that they've finally come around to seeing that. So how do I feel about the future of, of them doing it? Well, I have mixed feelings. I know that it's extremely difficult to make color film and that it would be kind of easier from for the company just to focus on inkjet printers or whatever it is that they do. But they really value the legacy image, if you like, yeah. of being a film manufacturer. They really value that highly. And while motion picture is profitable, that's all it needs to be. As long as it doesn't lose money, there's no reason to stop, except when it becomes time to reinvest in the plant, in the machinery that makes it. That's the danger time. Yeah, I had heard of some information, I can't even remember where I'd read it, but when they were discussing the um, the price increase of all the film stock, which I think they did at the end of last year, or maybe the year before. Oh, yeah. But um, they just did sure, a it happens all the time. But yeah, they, they just did a, you know, a blanket price increase, and I think it was reasonably significant. And apparently right. that was to cover the cost of putting in new infrastructure in the plant because demand had become so high. Excellent. Which I, I right. can't really confirm whether that's that's true or not. I've, I, I don't get to speak, speak to anyone at Kodak, but that was something that I read, which, you know, gave me some hope. Look, yeah. it's probably true. And, and I think that is an encouraging thing. We're, we're all prepared to pay a couple of dollars more per unit if it means that they're willing to make that commitment to the infrastructure, because the trouble is the legacy infrastructure that they've got was all, you know, designed and built around the idea of huge volumes. Yeah. Now they had these huge volume plants all around the world, but they've reduced to one plant, but it's still 
designed to output large amounts of stuff. It's a bulk thing, not a boutique thing. Yeah. They can't really convert that plant to being a kind of boutique plant, but any investment, any reinvestment in their setup there is a positive development because the alternative is abandoning it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Similarly, I do know that the motion picture emulsion coating and finishing departments have also recently employed 200 new staff. Wow. That's really great. The reason they did it is because they acknowledge the fact that their, you know, let's say legacy staff are getting old. And the fact that they took on new people, like deliberately as a program and trained 200 new people to do, do emulsion making and coating and finishing, I think is, is uh, really encouraging news. I agree that it does seem like they do just care about the image and, and film being available for the people that want it. I mean, the fact that they brought back Ektachrome because I can't imagine oh, that was bizarre. It, I can't imagine it was like made them made them a, a lot of money. I mean, probably didn't no. even actually know if they were going to be able to do it. Let alone they didn't know they could do it. Yeah, because um, you're entirely correct uh, there. Because the you know various dyes and other ingredients in the in the production process became no longer available. Right, partly because they were the main user of those things. And they said they no longer needed it. And so those chemicals just were no longer being fabricated. In relaunching Ectochrome, they had to go out of their way to find new ways of producing these ingredients, chemical ingredients. And that was the real challenge. So it's just so surprising and encouraging that they went to that effort. It cost them millions of dollars. That they felt that was worth doing. Uh, which it was worth doing, I think is really optimistic. It really means that um, they're viewing the, the market, I think realistically, that it's small but viable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is small, but the people who do it are very committed and, and passionate about it. So Yeah, and, and will continue to be so. Yeah, yeah. The fact that they, they went to the trouble of doing five, four sheets of ectochrome was you know pretty amazing really i mean how many people are going to be shooting those it really is yeah yeah but that there are enough people to do it and they'll do it in a kind of flagship sort of way you know like they'll really make the the presence felt of those five by four um, trainees yeah so that people will notice yeah i think i think it was a wise business decision but it wasn't one that was going to make a packet but it was one that wasn't going to lose money. Probably helped bring attention to the fact that they're still around and doing things and that they're committed as well. That's the thing. Unlike Fujifilm, that's discontinuing every stock every week, it seems. Yeah, that is the reason they're continuing motion picture, for instance, is because you know while it's not their, the bulk of their enterprise anymore, it's a really good image for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like just as you know, public image. We do this film stuff, and film stuff is interesting, cool, whatever. You know, inkjet printers are not interesting or cool. No, no, it's just good brand awareness. Aside from anything, really, isn't it? How have um, the sales been for the new Ectochrome stock in terms of just stuff that you're selling from the lab? Oh, look, that's a good question. Um, not good, frankly. Yeah, um, it's a little bit too expensive. Yeah coupled with the the fact that the cameras are old uh, and so the results are uh, and, and you know it's an unforgiving thing color yeah. reversal you have to have a working camera or a, a camera that works on manual and you know how to use a light meter so yeah for every hundred rolls of color neg we might sell you know two rolls of ectochrome right that said I'm delighted to be able to offer it and to have it continue but I always stress to people, if you're in a time-critical environment or you haven't tested your camera, don't use it. Use color neg because, yeah. you know, we process that, you know, four or five times a week and we process the reversal film, color reversal film, once a month. It's not, it's not a significant contributor. Whereas back in the, when we started, it was 100% of what we did. Yeah. But I, but I, do, I, I really love it being available and there is nothing better and watching uh, uh, an ectochrome film projected on film. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Once you scan it, it kind of defeats a bit of the purpose of shooting tra- any sort of transparency film, really. Like, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, so just if you're going to scan, use Neg. 
if you're yeah. not going to scan and you want to project in an analog way, oh man, use reversal. I, I, I often shoot 16 reversal just as home movies. Like if I'm going, like recently we went down to, when we could travel, we went down to Tasmania um, in autumn to film Australia's only deciduous tree. Right. The Nothophagus gunnii is what it's called. Nothophagus yeah, okay. gunnii. It's a southern beach. And it turns a wonderful uh, orangey, sometimes as far as red, but mostly orange yeah. color. So we went out hiking in the um, the southwest and um, filmed. Uh, you know, when, when we came across it, we you know filmed it on ectochrome, and it is just so glorious to watch yeah. it on sixteen mil ectochrome. It's just such a luxury. Yeah. I don't know if you know Nathan, but I make uh, a lot of experimental films. That's what I do. Apart from running the Super Eight Lab. Yeah. I have um, while we. You know, for money, we process Super 8 film and scan it. What I do uh, personally is uh, like we have a whole 16mm color neg lab here, and I can shoot neg and print it and oh, wow. optically print it as well and, and then make my release prints. I've got a sound, optical sound recording set up and all that stuff. Oh, wow. It's amazing. So I finish my films on 16, and they're always prints. Yeah. So I shoot on, say, 50D mostly and print onto 3383 color print stock. But the color prints are good, but they're not nearly as glorious as an ectochrome. Yeah. You know, things that are, I just want to cherish for myself, we shoot on that ectochrome 16. Yeah, it's funny um, scanning those, those old slides of my, um, of my grandma. I tried all these different things. I've got all these film scanners at home, and I did, I did test after test, and I got it down to the, the, the best result I could get, which was pretty good. But it just does not compare to just holding up to a window and looking at it. There is just yeah. something so magical about the colors and the detail yeah. captured on the film. You just cannot match it with a digital picture. Yes. So to the people listening, I say, try it. Yeah. Get an old projector, either slide projector or Super 8 projector or whatever, and try ectochrome and try re you know, reversal processing and just projecting a live image. Shoot negative, because negative is wonderful, but try ectochrome and experience it because it's something else. Yeah, that's some good advice. I should. Um, I, I still haven't shot it myself. I've, I've shot roll after roll of color neg. Yeah, it's just always been that thing of not having the reason or the time and or wanting to lay out that extra bit of cost to do the ectochrome. But um, I should look into a projector because I'd love to. I would love to see it that if way. You get a slide projector, and you and you will really enjoy that experience. Yeah. There's something really different about the way of um, your, your relationship to the image when you have one copy and it's a really beautiful copy. It's like only having the Mona Lisa, not mm. thousands of copies of the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Uh, it's special. It's a different relationship you have to that image. So you bring it out and you look at it again and again, as opposed to just you know, clicking through your images. You, you, you cherish the image. Mm. You spend a lot longer with it. Well, and I think that's true of anything with film. Just having that, I guess, the expense of it, you know, you can't just sort of fire away aimlessly and endlessly. And it's sort of reflected in, in the picture you get. That's something you're going to want to hang on to a lot more. But there are, there are other aspects to it apart from the expense. I mean, if you put... Um, you know, a dollar price tag on taking a digital image, you know, you, you would change the way you did it. But nonetheless, there'd be a difference between uh, that digital image and a film image still. Not, even though they have, you know, you might have the same price tag on them. There is a fundamental difference between um, a digital image and a film image. Partly it's the fact that you can't look back at it straight away. You know, you have to, have to wait for it. There's a time component which affects the way you go about shooting in the first place. It's different from, from many trajectories, from the, from the point of view of how you approach taking the photograph to how you consume the photograph afterwards, like how you engage with it. It's a different relationship all around. It's not just to do with the price tag. I know the lab is busy. How motivated are you still to you know, keep the lab running, keep developing film? Because I imagine it could be a pretty, certainly repetitive process developing all these reels huh. that come in what, yeah uh, you know is it, sure. is it something you enjoy doing and and still have motivation to to do for a while well for the for a while absolutely yeah yeah it's a pleasant business to be running the lab is in the same on the same piece of land that we live on in the country so it's a good lifestyle because we have are the only lab processing this kind of film in australia it wouldn't matter where we are. Like if we were in Sydney, everyone from Melbourne or Brisbane would have to post to us anyway. So the fact that we're in the country doesn't really affect anyone because, you know, even if we 
people outside Melbourne would still have to post to us anyway. So, so it's something we can do up here in a beautiful environment in Dalesford. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see us stopping until something happens to analog film. As long as there's analog film, we'll keep being NanoLab doing our thing. We're always streamlining, you know, the way we work here, so I can have more time to do my own things. So we've got staff now, all right, and that's made a big difference to my lifestyle. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, we concentrate on other things. But I always spend, well, I spend several hours every day talking to people on the phone about, you know, how to use their cameras and you know, how to tell whether they're working or, you know, diagnosing problems, that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. And I actually quite enjoy that, to be honest doing this kind of permanent workshop thing that we do. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends who I know have um, called you up about, about cameras and they go, oh, I'll just, I'll just call Richard, I'll just get him on the phone and he'll know what to do. So I think it's, I think it's certainly appreciated that you make yourself available. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually enjoy that side of the business, trying to teach people, like to explain things through this rather abstract, you know, just voice medium of the phone, um, yeah. trying to explain how to use the cameras and what might be wrong with it and and how to get around that. And the cameras are, as I say, all old. You take a chance when you buy one, but usually they're all redeemable, you know, if yeah. you just can work out their foibles. I mean, I think the biggest the biggest threat to the future of the vi- ongoing viability of, of Super 8 is the cameras. On the one hand, they're becoming more expensive. On the, on the other hand, they're, be- they're getting older and um, there's no one servicing them. I mean, perhaps that'll change. Perhaps someone will take on the idea of servicing Super 8 cameras because it's viable and there's an interest in it. But in the absence of that, I think the death of the cameras is the, is the biggest threat unless Kodak can finally come up with their new camera. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, about that. I, that, that yeah. just popped back in my head when you, um, yeah, you were talking about no one's making new ones. I was like, yeah. well, they, I, was, I was checking that website and I was signed up to the, the mailing list for that yeah. for a long time and waiting for that one to come out and it just never really got there, did it's, it? It's about four years Four years overdue now. Yeah. Um, what it points to, the fact that it's difficult for them to do it, is the fact that these things were made by a whole ecosystem. I think I might have said that earlier. A whole ecosystem of factories and whatever that were making little components for you know the the components for the lens or the components for the shutter or for the the claw that moves the film. And all these factories are gone, and they're making other things now. Like you know, we're making iPhones and androids and things like that and uh, it's not possible to just sort of turn that back on Mm. what what is possible however would be for someone to say look there were x hundred thousand of this particular model of camera made i'm going to become an expert on this model work out how to service and and strip these things and get the parts from that i think that would work and and i reckon that's the hope of the side Someone says, I'm going to go into the refurbishing of the Canon such and such camera. Yeah. Um, and just stockpiling uh, them so they've got a mountain of parts that they can sort of pull from exactly. broken cameras. And Yep, that's right. And, and it just as the prices keep going up of the cameras, it'll get to a point where refurbishing cameras is viable. Yeah. Like if a, if a, if a secondhand camera is $50, then there's not really much point trying to sell a refurbished camera for $500. But if a secondhand camera is becoming $500, then you can justify finding a cheap camera and fixing it up and, and selling it. And I think that that might happen. And, and there'd be nothing better than that, because I would certainly recommend paying $500 for a serviced camera. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the, the Canon 814 XLS on eBay will cost you about a grand these days. Oh. So beautiful camera there's a market i know I, I you know i found one on um i have one of those which which timed out quite well because i had an old a Nizo and it, it broke not long yep. after i got it but i found uh, yep. a canon on facebook marketplace for 80 dollars. it was brand new sitting in a pile of 814 um, xls yeah <laughs> yep and it was yep. um, that's what you need yeah just yeah. buried buried in this pile yep. of old cameras in a picture that was just bulk cameras and that they were all broken uh, and dirty and horrible classic and the Canon was in its original like red velvet case. Yeah. If it, yeah. If it wasn't brand new, you it had know, barely been used. The, those XLS cameras, they just they look timeless to me. If you told me they were designed now rather than in 1978 or whatever it was, I'd believe you. you know? yeah. I just reckon they look like them. They don't look dated. 
they look both wonderful. Yeah, now they're a bit so, ahead yeah. of their time in terms of their design. I do get people asking me, they're like, oh, so this is like a new one that mm. shoots the old mm. film or it looks vintage or something like that. I'm like, no, no, this is... Wonderful. They're yeah. wonderful. They were a really good design for that. You know, like if you can, if you can do the industrial designing that has this timeless appeal, it's amazing. Yeah, and very functional, really and, and the viewfinder is so bright and clear, and certainly get a lot more shots in focus on those. Yeah, my, my favorite camera, really, especially because they have the switchable, the switchable low light shutter. Yes, the XL, the XL shutter. Yeah, you know, I make quite a lot of use of that. It's very handy. Not something you'd, you'd think about when you're buying a Super 8 camera, but um, that's mm. a it's a great feature. Nathan, I assume your podcast is mostly about still film. It is. I mean, mm. it's just kind of branching off. Like I, I started it to be about just film in general and then it's just sort of been going in whatever direction i sort of chat with people about it's more just more talking it is more to do with photography but kind of just talking about photography's place rather than so much specifically about film you know like the legacy of photos that we take and where they're going to live and you know who who they're really for and when they're for and you know i've shot super eight for five or six years Quite a while. I remember your name from a long time. Yeah, doing it with my, my wedding video business. It's all just sort of image making, I guess, to me. One thing I'd, I'd like to tell you about, or your audience anyway, is about this thing called the artist-run film lab movement. It, it might be peripheral to your normal concerns, but I'll tell you about it anyway. Yeah. The artist-run film labs are small, independent film collectives, film processing collectives that have sprung up all over the world over the past, say, 10 years. Uh, this is in motion picture film, by the way. Yeah. There's always been a certain amount of DIY processing and, and lab work in, in the history of cinema, but it's really blossomed since about 2010. This particular uh, incarnation of the artist-run film lab movement it came out of France, came out of Paris, and uh, has subsequently spread right across Europe and then into the Americas and here. And there are a number of artist-run film labs in Asia, even. In, in um, Seoul, there's one that's been going longer than us. Right. There's one in Jakarta. There's a small group in the Philippines, etc. And what they were about, uh, I, I say we because I'm a significant um, advocate and player in the artist-run film lab game. What we're about is getting people to do their own processing of motion picture film in order to explore artistically and creatively that side of cinema, right? Yeah. Like it's always been possible to play with cameras and to play with projectors, but it's been more difficult for people in the past, in particular, to play with the chemistry and the printing of motion picture, just from a creative point of view, just seeing what what you can do with this stuff, with the chemistry and with the printing processes. So the artist-run film labs, uh, who are kind of structured around this website called filmlabs.org, I'd suggest people have a look at that, are about encouraging people to explore that part of what cinema is, like what the apparatus of cinema is, extending it from just thinking about cameras to thinking about chemistry and to think about the stuff that's normally, like historically, being done by commercial enterprises, like film labs, like the printing side of things. Because the printing side of things is also a creative area or a potentially creative area. Yeah. So Diana, my partner Diana and I are very much involved in that. We've spent a lot of time touring the world, going to these small artist-run film labs around the place, teaching workshops and um, trying to, you know, doing screenings, yeah, showing our own films, but also trying to give people information enough to be able to, you know, do their own thing, to be able to you know, process their own film, is in, whether it be in a bucket or in a in a Lomo processing spiral or, or what have you. That's amazing. I, th- I think that's really important too for people to learn. In terms of um, Super 8, I've obviously just sent my stuff to, to Nanolab and got a great result and um, never never thought too much more about it than that. But for um, photography, I do 35, 120. I've started doing 5x4 and I develop all my black and white at home. I've had a bit of a go at doing color neg at home and um, scanning everything myself. And just the amount that I've learned about what you can do with it and how you can change your results with, yeah, like you said, with chemistry and with different scanning processes. And that also just, you know, changes how you shoot, thinking about how you expose your film as well. It just opens up a whole nother world. That's right. It It changes your whole understanding of what the medium is I mean, even if you don't continue with that side of it, processing and printing and all, or you know, 
know, scanning or whatever it is, even if you don't actually continue with that as part of your practice or your activity, getting some understanding of it, I think is really important in terms of fleshing out your knowledge of what the, what the medium is, what its possibilities are. I'm a big advocate for um, at least getting some experience. I mean, this is what I tell people a lot at, when I do university classes and things that are maybe the one time that the, the class will be exposed to film. I think that it's valuable for them to do that, to get an understanding of what this moving image or still, still photograph reproducing activity is like, is about at its most fundamental level. Knowing where it's come from, I think, is really a significant value for people to learn and to carry with them into the future. And just to understand that there's more than one way of doing things, I think, again, from a, exactly. a, a photographic point of view, you know, people send their things off to all these new little sort of mini labs that are popping up that are doing a great job, but everything kind of comes out looking the same because they're all using the same scanners, they're all using the same uh, mini lab processes and um, probably the same sure. black and white developer for everyone, um, obviously changing, you know, changing the times and things, but having that knowledge, whether you're using it or not. Just having some understanding of what's involved, what's possible. That's right. How this thing works, that you don't have to do things, you know, in a particular way. You can do it in all sorts of ways, in particular in black and white. Obviously, the color processes are very standardized. The black and white processes are just open. You can go anywhere with it. And there's so much variation available. I really encourage people to get some black and white neg film, you know, be it in Super 8 or in still film, 35 mil or whatever, and just try a whole lot of different developers on it and see the differences that you can get and see what's under your control. People in the past had an understanding of this. You should try and get that understanding because there's so much you can do. And it's amazing how easy it is to do at home too, yourself. Like you don't, oh, yeah. you don't need to be a, yeah. a chemist to um, develop black and white film. No. And you don't need a lot of equipment either. It's a, it's a very simple process. It re really, the thing um, that I've learned is just more about finding the way to get the result that you want. You, you do not have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a perfectionist. You just need to try a whole lot of different things. You know, develop in coffee, develop in red wine, develop in, you know, various commercial developers, whatever you like. There's just so many things you can do. I, I saw a great Super 8 film that a friend of ours made on a train in Greece. He had a little camp stove set up on a moving train, mm -hmm. and he was doing color Super 8 processing on the train. He was using the little water dispenser <laughs> in the in the corridor of the train to get the chemist to get the water to mix up the chemistry. Mm. And he was emptying the hose out the window <laughs> of the train. And it was all about demonstrating how doable this stuff is. Yeah. You know, how the fact the fact that you can just you can just, you know, get your hands into it and, and get on with it. It does all seem like a bit of a mystery, I guess, when you first start shooting you don't see the film it's just it's in your camera then it's in the you know it's in its cartridge or i know what you mean and and it comes yeah. all of a sudden you yeah. get it back it's like oh there's this picture and the picture looks amazing and I, I have no idea how these people do it but they did it and i, I like it there's mm. not really that much to it you just need a bit of encouragement yeah for sure and do you run workshops in in, in dalesford or in melbourne at all or well, is it yeah, mostly we run workshops through a thing in Melbourne that we started called Artist Film Workshop, AFW, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's about motion picture film, that's yeah. what we're about. So we, we've taught thousands of workshops in that, but, well, hundreds anyway, but we've done thousands of workshops um, around the world, Donna and I, all over the place, doing, um, you know, teaching a, a really wide range of different super eight processing techniques and 16 mil processing techniques and variations with chemistry and types of printing and all of that sort of stuff. And we do that all the time. It's like a main thing that we do when we, when there's no COVID. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I always make sure I check the, the Nanolab website before I send a roll off because you jump on there and it's like, Oh, actually yeah. we're, uh, we're away for the next month. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's changed now because we've got staff. But that used, yes, you're right, Nathan. I apologise for that. It used to be the case. <laughs> oh no, you just got to, you know, you just got to pick your time for when you when you get things get things in. I'm curious to know um, what kind of stuff 
you see come through the lab just in terms of like the actual content like i said i've been sending you wedding films uh for probably five or six years but yeah what, what kind of other stuff are you seeing yeah well um, as you say weddings are at least a quarter i mean you could uh, the big part of it which is was a complete surprise to us when we started we didn't know that there would be that but of course it's obvious when you think about it yeah when you think about it the other thing we see a lot of is music videos at least a quarter of the stuff you can see people are doing music videos yeah okay and then we see a lot of skating and surfing that's another category and then we see a reasonable amount of documentary kind of reenactmenty stuff okay you know, where people have you know uh, are restaging something like just to be evocative of the period so there's a lot of stuff with people in them in period costume or whatever. Right. I mean, that must be a, a meaningful percentage. I won't give it a figure. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then there's a small amount of hot, just straight baby on mat home movies. Yeah. Often enough, those baby on mats are test roles, you know, that someone will go on and do something else, but they're just testing other cameras. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Just make sure that light meter works. Yeah. What was the other one? Fashion. Fashion is fashion, a big one too. Yes. 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 A lot of fashion stuff. Yeah, I've got uh, a, a is, good mate is, of mine who does a lot of fashion, uh, Super 8. And they shoot a lot of the time with the camera uh, in vertical format, which is interesting. Yeah, I've seen a bit of that too. I've, I've, a, friend, a friend of mine I was um, shooting a wedding with and she was doing a bit of Super 8 there and she just kept flipping the camera sideways. And I was like... Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. No. Yeah. I guess monitors get put sideways. So. Well, yeah, that's it. Yeah. There is some stunning stuff done that way, I must say. Some, some, of, the, some of the fashion stuff we see is high quality. Well, I guess you know people have caught on that you can you know you can get a really great picture out of Super 8, especially the 50D. I mean, that's so um, especially if you've got a sharp lens and you shoot 50D in good light, the quality of the the picture is um amazing. Well, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 50D is is can be stunning. Obviously, a lot depends on the lens, and the lens because the lenses are all old, you really can't tell until you put film through it. But if you get a good lens. Uh, it can be quite impressive, especially if you know how to focus it. The, the range of you know quality we get, but the same model camera, you see a range of results. But when you see really good results, it, it they just stand out. Mostly, of course, people are editing the Super 8 material with digital material, and they're contrasting it all the time. But I, I think that uh, is a, a beautiful approach and a, a great opportunity that people have these days, mixing up all sorts of things. I do like that myself. I think it can have a really big impact cutting between Super mm. 8 and digital. Even if you are shooting that sort of 50D and getting a very clean kind of image, it's still, um, you know, the color and... Oh, it's still film. It's, it's still Super 8, yeah. Just the swap between ratio and, and format and stuff um, stands out. Uh, and we're so lucky today because you can mix anything. You know, in the past, you had to make a dedicated choice, and that's what you were doing. Um, whereas now we're going via digital. You can mix a phone with a with Super 8, with, with 35mm, with a DSLR. It's really quite wonderful. Richard, I really appreciate you uh, making the time to have a chat. Like I said, I've, I've been using the lab for a long time, and you've always been very accommodating And with any, any requests I've ever had, though. So um, I'm sure I speak for a lot of the film shooting community. That I, I'm, you know, we appreciate that you're um, still... Uh, they're operating and I've got such a high quality lab so close to home we have to send our film halfway around the world yeah well it's a pleasure for us we enjoy it and it's great to hear the lab's going really well and also just uh, get a bit of inside intel into the world of Kodak and that's here for the time being well thanks Nathan I'll see you down the track will do thanks very much Richard all right ciao bye